Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It was clear that it would be a, a really, really useful technology, but I have to say I could never have predicted just how widely it would be adopted and how quickly. And now to see that we're actually at a stage when clinical trials are happening with CRISPR is, is truly extraordinary. That's Jennifer Doudna talking to CBC about the promise of CRISPR technology. She won the Nobel Prize in 2020 for this revolutionary gene editing tool. And now there has been a landmark CRISPR breakthrough. In a world first, the UK approved the first treatment that uses CRISPR gene therapy for two blood disorders, sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Sickle cell disease is one of the most common genetically inherited diseases in Canada, predominantly impacts black populations around the world. We'll talk about the science behind this breakthrough in just a moment, but first, for more on the disease and what it's like to live with it, I'm joined by Beverly Nduku. She lives with sickle cell disease, is the founder of Sickle Circle Manitoba, and she's with me in our studio in Toronto. Good morning. Good morning. How would you describe what it's like to live with sickle cell disease? Uh, I'd say living with sickle cell disease is very unpredictable. Uh, some mornings you wake up in extreme pain and you still go on with your day. And then some days, you know, it's it's not as bad and and it's more manageable and you can function normally. Um, you kind of just never know what your day is going to be like. On the worst days, and I know this from some friends who have this, on the mm -hmm. worst days, what does that pain feel like? My best description is a stabbing knife, like constant. Not. A stabbing knife. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not being dramatic either. <laughs> and you go through your day with that pain kind of coursing through your body. Yeah, yeah. Deciding when it's bad enough for me to actually go into the hospital or if it's something I can manage on my own at home. How often does that happen when the stabbing pain would lead you to feel like you need to go into the hospital? Um, you know, it's different for everyone. Yeah. And me in particular, I find that I have not a whole lot of pain crises. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I have to say in the last uh, year, I hadn't been hospitalized for about 12 years. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah. But in the past year, I, I've been in the hospital twice for pain crises. When were you diagnosed with this? I was diagnosed when I was two years old. And what were, what were the signs at that point that something was going on? So unfortunately, I was in the middle of my very first crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I, my parents describe it as being on my deathbed. Um, when you were two? When I was two, yeah. Wow. Because the doctors didn't know what was happening. Um, fortunately, my dad knew a colleague from Nigeria who was aware of the disease. He kind of knew what was going on. And uh, at the time we were living in Brandon, he you know, encouraged him to bring me to Winnipeg where they could better take care of me. Um, so my dad had to take me out against medical um, advice, drive me to the hospital because they would not provide an ambulance. And, um, and that doctor was able to set everything up for me to get surgery right away. And thank goodness I'm here today. And that was the journey, the beginning of the journey for yes, you. Yes, yeah. This is, this is something that's run through your family as well. Yes, it's genetic. Tell me about your sister. 
Um, my little sister, Andrea, she passed away from complications with sickle cell disease about 16 years ago. Actually. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So um, sickle cell is different in everyone. Uh, unfortunately, with her, um, you know, she struggled quite a bit in her childhood with sickle cell disease. And so, yeah, there's there's really no telling what's going to happen when. And with her, unfortunately, um, she had essentially a blood infection that we were unaware of. And, you know, they always warn you that things can happen fast. And it did. And it happened fast. Mm-hmm. You mentioned surgery, that you had surgery when you were very young. Yes. What are the treatments that you have had over the course of your life to deal with this disease? Um, yeah, so it's been, that's, that surgery was, of, uh, the first surgery that I had, it was on my left hand and right foot. Um, I've also had... And the surgery was done to, to do what, as you understand it? I had clots in my in my uh, left hand and right foot. Okay. And so the surgery was to remove them. Mm. Um, and then also I have had um, a brain aneurysm that's been coiled. Um, and I've had, I've had chest crises. No surgery was required for that. But um, I've had to teach myself how to breathe a couple times in my life. It sounds terrifying to live through. <laughs> In part because it's unpredictable, as you said. Exactly. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when the, the alarm is going to go off. Exactly, ways. yeah. So when you heard about this new treatment using CRISPR, gene editing, and we're mm-hmm. going to hear more about how it's done, but it's essentially kind of snip it out of, yes. of, of your DNA. Yes. When you heard about that, what went through your mind? Um, ecstatic. <laughs> 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 to put it bluntly. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. I mean, technology has advanced so much that we can edit the gene that causes sickle cell disease. Mm. Um, Now, like technically to my understanding, what we're doing is editing the gene that kind of defaults in the body. And so um, I believe you still technically have sickle cell disease. It just doesn't happen. Exactly, exactly. It just doesn't affect you as much. Is this something that you are, I mean, this has only been approved in the UK, but, but are you looking at this thinking this is something that I would, avail myself of if, if it were to come to Canada? I have been looking at it for a long time. Um, I think it always comes down to the question of, is my disease bad enough mm. um, for this treatment? Because there are, I mean, it's a one-time thing, but it takes, we're going to hear more about this, but it takes many months exactly. in many ways for you to go through this kind of treatment. Exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's certain things happening within the treatment. It's like, it's which, which, which one is better? Mm. What's the risk type of thing? So for me, um, you know, my disease, like I said, it's just when it hits, it hits hard sometimes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a mad, it'd be a, a lengthy conversation with my doctors in terms of like, what's the benefit versus risk. What do you want us to think differently about when it comes to how we as a nation treat this disease? People have talked on this program before about yes. how, because um, it largely impacts black populations around the world, they feel as though this disease gets less attention than perhaps other diseases, less funding, there's, there's yes. less work that's done in it, and people feel as though they're on their own in some ways. So yes. what would you want to see? Yeah, I can 100%, um, as someone living with sickle cell disease, say that it does get less attention. Mm-hmm. I work in healthcare as well. Um I would like to see people take sickle cell seriously. <laughs> pain is very subjective. And so unfortunately, you know, it's, it's different for everyone. My worst pain 
could be your least pain, could be your, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, if people can believe that, be believed that pain is pain, if people can get the standardized care that they need for sickle cell disease, it shouldn't be different per province that you go to. You should be taken care of no matter what. Um, and in that sense, just like a better knowledge of sickle cell disease and how to take care of it. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Beverly Nduku uh, lives with sickle cell disease. She's the founder of Sickle Circle Manitoba. Dr. Kevin Kuo is the director of the Red Blood Cell Program at the University Health Network in Toronto, associate professor in the Division of Hematology at the University of Toronto. He's also with us in studio. Good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. Just very briefly, what is it that causes sickle cell disease? Beverly gave a pretty good description there. Yes, I think uh, Beverly hit it right on the nail. Um, sickle cell is a, a genetic condition where the red blood cells change from a round donut shape into a sickle shape. And you can imagine that red cells are used for delivering oxygen to the body. So when the red cells change into a donut shape, they get stuck in the blood vessels and they explode. Or it's called hemolysis. So there's no oxygen being carried to the organs. So mm. the organs literally die off. Every second. We've been hearing about the lack of, of treatments that are available in the long term for people. When this um, CRISPR breakthrough was announced, some of the language that was used was life-changing, monumental. Is it that big of a deal to you? For those who succeed with the therapy, absolutely. It is completely life-changing. It permanently eradicates the sickle cell disease. That's a big deal. Yes. You're currently working on clinical trials using CRISPR gene therapy here in Toronto, right? Yes, that's right. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, we have collaboration with SickKids on this very particular one, the CRISPR-Cas9, and then we have um, collaboration with Princess Margaret Hospital as well on slightly different CRISPR techniques. But um, all these trials are currently running, and uh, we're recruiting patients. How far away are we from patients here in this country being able to access that therapy that would eliminate sickle cell disease? That's a tough question. And it's because it goes beyond the technology itself. We have the know-how in Canada. We have the technology. We know how to do this. I feel like the biggest barrier are cost and resources. Cost is a big thing because the company that makes this this treatment hasn't set a price yet, but gene therapy can generally be very expensive. People are talking about millions of dollars. Correct, yes. Yeah, I'm estimating to be around 2 million or north of that. So how big of a, it sounds obvious in some ways, we, we don't talk about the cost of healthcare in this country as much as perhaps other jurisdictions, but how much of a barrier is that for people who will want to access this in future? I think... The, the barrier goes beyond the cost. I mean, even if we can bring the cost down, there's still the resources, right? We'll be competing resources with um, people with other diseases mm-hmm. because for this technology to happen, you need the entire healthcare infrastructure to support it. You need nurses, radiologists, pathologists, um, blood bank specialists, um, doctors that specializes in doing gene therapy. And <clears throat> currently in this situation, you know, where we're post-COVID, um, We'd be competing with very scarce resources. And, you know, where are we going to get those resources? One of the things that I'd heard, though, is that, I mean, and Beverly talked a little bit about being hospitalized, for example, that research shows that treating patients with sickle cell over the course of their lifetime, from birth until the age of 65, can cost somewhere like $1.5, $1.6, $1.7 million. That's just for treating them. Absolutely. So if curing it costs, I mean, it seems like a lot of money, but if it costs a few hundred thousand dollars more, 
Is that money well spent, do you think? Personally, I think it's completely well spent. Mm. And I've told all my patients, if one day I can be out of a job as a sickle cell doctor, I'll be so happy. <laughs> is there a sense that Health Canada would approve something like this? Again, we saw the UK give the green light, such as it is, to it. Unfortunately, and a great part is not up to Health Canada to approve because it's up to the drug company to initiate the filing. Mm. So meaning that if the company feels that the market is not big enough in Canada or is not worth it, quote unquote, for them to market this in Canada, they'll never file in Canada. And so it will never come to us, even no matter how much we want it, no matter how much Health Canada wants to approve it. So what happens then? You will hear from, we will hear from people like Beverly who are living with this disease now, who have heard this conversation, who say, yes, please bring it here. What happens now? Now is about advocacy, is about teaming up together and say to these companies that we want your treatment in Canada. Don't leave us behind. You're encouraged, though, by, by the pace of this technology, by what's happening? I'm cautiously optimistic yeah. because there's a number of companies that are now focusing on using this technology to cure sickle cell disease. And with competition, I'm hoping the price is going to come down. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Dr. Kevin Kuo is the director of the Red Blood Cell Program at the University Health Network in Toronto. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Jason Mast is a reporter focusing on the science behind new medicines. He's with the online publication STAT. Jason, good morning and thanks for being here. Let's start with a bit of a science lesson, if you would. Just briefly, how does CRISPR work? Yeah, so it is this tool that researchers developed about a decade ago and they sort of stole it from bacteria that use it as a antiviral mechanism. Uh, researchers have managed to turn it into the most common metaphor is uh, molecular scissors that you can basically direct at any gene and uh, either snip it in half or do a, a variety of different things or surgeries to that uh, particular strand of DNA. Um, and researchers are using it to tackle a long range of uh, different uh, threats to, to human health. And the scissors just allow you to snip out what you don't want in that gene. Yes, exactly. How does that work when it comes to sickle cell disease? Yeah, so what researchers did with sickle cell is actually incredibly clever. So sickle cell is caused by a mutation in uh, hemoglobin, which carries oxygen uh, on all our like red, red blood cells. Um, and... And it forces these cells to become a, a sickle shape or uh, this, this weird form that clogs up blood vessels and can't carry oxygen as well. But it turns out that all humans, including people with sickle cell, have a sort of a backup copy of hemoglobin that is only used in infancy and in the womb. Um, and normally, we then have another gene that kind of blocks that fetal hemoglobin, this infant hemoglobin, from being uh, used or expressed uh, in anyone who's you know over six months of age. Um, and what researchers figured out was they could actually block a gene or block a break on that fetal hemoglobin. Um, and when they break the break, 
then beta-hemoglobin can now turn on. You can now get this sort of backup form of hemoglobin, and patients can basically live perfectly healthy lives um, or thereabouts uh, with this with this backup copy. And that would be a lifelong change for, for those patients who undergo this treatment, that, that that adjustment, that alteration would be enough to, to, to prevent the uh, manifestation of sickle cell from happening over the course of their lifetime? We don't know yet that it is a full lifetime change. These like studies have gone on for a few years now, and what we see is really, really durable responses going out up to about three years. Um, and researchers certainly think that this will last probably for decades um, and hopefully lifelong, but they're not yet quite ready to say this is permanent, this is a lifetime cure, but certainly something that is very durable and will hopefully last for uh, decades. One of the questions that people are asking, we've been talking about this, is how much this would cost. Do we have a sense as to what the what the cost of this would be? We don't. Uh, the company behind it, Vertex, has not yet released an actual price, but it will certainly uh, run into the millions of dollars uh, for the treatment. And then also uh, the cost of giving the drug will also uh, be fairly expensive as it requires a lengthy hospital stay. Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize for her work on CRISPR, said last week uh, in a tweet, I'm excited and a bit overwhelmed with emotion at the news of the approval of this in the UK. Going from the lab to an approved CRISPR therapy in just 11 years is a truly remarkable achievement. Talk to me about the speed of this. 11 years since she published that paper until now. To you, how surprising is that? Yeah, I mean, 11 years in, I think, uh, most of us think about it as quite some time, but in the sort of framework of, of like drug development that is sort of overnight, you've seen other tools and, and uh, new new science sort of take maybe 15 years, 17 years, 20 years. Um, and so the speed at which they've been able to bring this to approval, but then also the other sort of range of trials that are are bringing drugs sort of uh, for other other rare diseases and and cancer and and uh, other conditions uh, to something near approval and and hopefully approval in the next few years has been uh, quite astounding in in the context of of how long it takes to build a drug. What are the other CRISPR related treatments that are underway right now? Yeah, I mean there there's a whole bunch. There's an effort to treat. Um, HIV with this. There's an effort to treat heart disease by lowering people's uh, um, LDL or, or uh, like bad cholesterol. Mm -hmm. uh, there's efforts to treat um, several rare diseases such as um, uh, muscular dystrophy, such as a increasingly common disease that is not well talked about called uh, amyloidosis. Um, and so, and and that's just a few. There's uh, like sort of cancer and 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 a, and a very very broad range that are either in trials right now or hopefully will be in studies in the next few years. So just finally, as somebody who reports on this, what to you is most exciting about this? Because it's this is one wicked problem when it comes to sickle cell disease, but the way that you've laid this out is that there are a bunch of these these wicked problems that, that this treatment, this approach could help us tackle. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's two things. I think we should actually sort of, we should we should focus on how big a deal this is for sickle cell, a, a um, rare disease or, well, rare, like in the U.S., and uh, the Western world, but but not rare, sort of globally, that has sort of been overlooked for decades and decades by the medical establishment, by large pharma. Um, and so that's a huge moment uh, by itself. And then hopefully we'll see how how well these other studies go. But hopefully this is sort of a dawn of a new moment in, in medicine. A dawn of a new moment in medicine. 
yeah, if we can actually use this tool and and we'll see because how accessible is this? How actually applicable is this to every single genetic disease um, and and more common diseases like diabetes? We'll see how those studies go, but uh, and 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 if we can actually make this in a way that is not costing two, three, four million dollars per person, mm. uh, hopefully you can get something that's scalable that is actually able to help uh, millions of people. We could do with a bit of good news. I'm glad to talk to you about this, Jason. Thank you very much. Yep, thank you so much. Really appreciate this, Matt. Jason Mast is a reporter who focuses on the science behind new medicines. He's with the online publication STAT. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.